A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we get to today's story, just want to share a couple of uh, feedback from our community of Jewish History Soundbites listeners from the most recent episode of FDR Roosevelt, President Roosevelt and the Jews. The responses came thick and fast. This obviously uh, touched a raw nerve with a lot of listeners in many directions, so I'll just share a couple of them. One was from a listener who shared a very nice mitziah, a tshuva in a halachic sefer by a rabbi named Rabbi Ben-Sion Eisenstadt. And the question was, and we mentioned in the, in the, in the episode about how the Jewish people, the American Jewish community was enamored uh, with Roosevelt. So here the question was, reflecting that, was it permitted to leave shul on Shabbos morning between Shachris and Musaf to see FDR? He was in the neighborhood apparently where this question was asked and he was supposed to be coming to the neighborhood and they wanted to see his motorcade and make a, I guess, make a bracha or maybe not just to see him. And the question was, is it appropriate to leave uh, Shabbos morning in davening uh, to go see the president, to see how prominent it was. So that was from one listener, so thank you for sharing that. Another one sent in a quote from a memoir of, of Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Ephraim Kestenbaum, who is the son of Rabbi David Kestenbaum, who was active in saving European Jews during the Holocaust, recounted that Wise phoned his father on several occasions, telling him, that he should stop putting so much pressure on the American government to save European Jews. Rabbi Kestenbaum told of how on one occasion he took a message for his father from Wise, who told him, tell your father that he has to be an American f- and not to fight hard for Jews in Europe. You have to be an American first, end quote. So uh, this amazing, uh, amazingly powerful uh, quote from a memoir that... Uh, that Wise is, is in a certain way even actively against rescue because you have to be an American first and a Jew second, especially for a Jew in Europe. So it's a very um, strong uh, condemnation of Stephen Wise's behavior 
at the time. So that's that's that that's uh, also a very uh, very good addition to the discussion we had about uh, FDR and the Jews and the role of Stephen Wise during that time. And now we're getting back getting to today's tonight's uh, uh, episode. We'll talk a little bit about a even though Jewish History Salmites has not yet done any tours to Syria. And I don't know if we'll, there will be any anytime soon. We do tours to, we claim to say have tours to all places of Jewish history, and we go all over Europe and all kinds of trips, and even not not in Europe, you know, Morocco is becoming very popular lately, um, and Syria, which has a rich uh, story of Jewish history, haven't made it there yet, um, but maybe one day things will change on the ground and we'll. And we'll uh, we'll make it out there. But in 1840, there was a very uh, big event, the story, a fascinating story of a blood libel in Damascus, which uh, sent shockwaves through the Jewish world and to a certain extent through the major part of the civilized world as well. The background to the Damascus blood libel of 1840 is we're in the tottering Ottoman Empire, uh, the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled over a major portion of the world for several hundred years, was now in the throes of a long process of its uh, internal imploding and economic downturn and lack of control over the far reaches of the empire and all kinds of other things plaguing it. And there's foreign influence of the European powers uh, within the internal affairs of the empire. The uh, sultans of the Ottoman Empire from the 1830s and on, they tried passing a series of reforms, the Tanzimit, something like that, reforms in the Ottoman Empire to try to, to try to, you know, give somewhat of an equal rights, at least in, in, uh, in theory, if not in practice, to the different populations of a very, uh, very heterogeneous, uh, empire demographic within the, Different areas, different colonies, different districts, and 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 there's also a rebellion. You know, the governor, a Ottoman appointed governor, Muhammad Ali Pasha, not to be mixed up with the famous sports star boxer Muhammad Ali of the 20th century. Different person, not named for him even. The arguably the greatest sportsman of the 20th century probably more than people like Pele or Babe Ruth or Michael Jordan, but that's a topic for another discussion, what he did to the sport of boxing and his influence, and, and that's definitely uh, veering off topic. But this other Muhammad Ali, or really Muhammad Ali, in the, uh, in the original pronunciation, he was a governor of Egypt and the Egypt area, and he rebels against the Ottoman Empire and conquers territory from the Ottoman Empire, moving up to Syria. He even got to Constantinople and fought the Sultan himself, and but is pushed back to close to Damascus. So you have this rebel leader who's in control of Damascus at the time. He's in control of Eretz by the way, at the time as well. And, and um, he's... He's kind of an internal dissent within, within, against the Sultan within the Ottoman Empire, a Muslim rule. Till today, he's considered the father of uh, Egyptian nationalism. 
the Egyptian kings until the Free Officers' Rebellion of 1952 of, of Gamal Abdel Nasser were descendants of the dynasty of Muhammad Ali, of Muhammad Ali. And, and, and he, he's the controlling ruler of Damascus at the time. There's also a heavy influence of European consuls in general in the Ottoman Empire, and especially in the areas controlled by Muhammad Ali, France, England, Italy, Germany, other countries. European imperialism is on the rise, and they have a, they have a lot to say about what goes on uh, within the, those areas of the Ottoman Empire also. So that's the background. So now we get to the story itself. So it's story time. So we have a a um, a French citizen, a priest, a Franciscan monk. I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, named Father Thomas, and his assistant, a Greek, and they disappear. He and his assistant disappear, never to be seen again. They're apparently killed or die or they're gone. And what happens is the Jewish community is blamed. The whole process of, of events of how they get blamed and 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 how that comes what what's important for our story is that the french consul in damascus had a major influence on what goes on in damascus and he was an anti-semite and the irony of the story of the damascus blood libel we're talking about in 1840 blood libels seem to be have been a thing of the past they belong to the medieval world. They belong to the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Now we live in a time of reason, a time of culture, a time of equal rights, emancipation. After the French Revolution, it's a different world. Why would there be a blood libel? So we think, oh, it's Damascus in the backward uh, waters of the Ottoman Empire, the Muhammad Ali, the Muslims, the Arabs. That's where there still was a blood libel. But in reality, the Muslim world had no idea what a blood libel was, and they never had blood libels and until recent times. There's, it's been, been a bit of a revival, belief in the blood libel, but, uh, but that's a different story. But at that time, it was non-existent in the Muslim world, and the one who fanned the, the hate and the conspiracy and the story of the blood libel about the... Jewish community in Damascus at the time was none other than the French consul. The French consul of liberal France, of emancipation France, of French Revolution France. But he's the Christian, he's the one who's powerful, and he's the one who's influential in influencing Muhammad Ali's proxy in Damascus that the Jews are to blame. This is a blood libel. They need the blood of Father Thomas and his assistant for their matzahs on Pesach. And 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 because of this French consul, whose name is anyways impossible to pronounce in French, so what's the difference? And he and he fans the flames of the blood libel. The Jewish community, about thirteen Jewish community community leaders of Damascus, are arrested. They're tortured. They try to extract confessions from them. Some of them die. Four of them die from the tortures and the imprisonment. So they're actually fatalities from this episode. And the other ones are held in prison under very adverse conditions. They're being tortured. They want them to implicate others. They want them to tell the whole story of what they did to Father Thomas and why they needed his blood for the matzahs and what's going on. Now, after, again, we have to go back to the macro, to the context. 
Christians and Jews within places like the Ottoman Empire or under Muhammad Ali or any place of the Muslim lands were second-class citizens. They were called dimi. They had a special status as as a tolerated second-class citizens as long as they paid certain taxes and they abided by the regulations of the dimi under Muslim rule, then they're tolerated citizens. So there's always this feeling of of second class. And not only that, but there's there's who which second class demographic has more influence with the ruling class? Do the Jews or the Christians? And it depended where, it depended when, and a lot of it depended on economic uh, points of, of 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 control. And if the Jews controlled certain businesses, then they would be more influential with the ruling Turks. And if the Christians did, then they would be more influential. And the 19th century is a modernization of the economy. There's stiff competition about key roles in the local economy. And therefore, who's going to have more influence with the ruling authorities? So there's definitely competition between the Christians and Jews, who are both minorities in Damascus, with the French consul being a leading amongst the Christian faction. And therefore, he's using this as leverage against the Jewish community, the powerful Farhi family of Damascus, which was powerful in the banking and the shipping concerns of, of, of the Syrian area. And they were trying to wrest control away from that. So a lot of it has to do with internal economic disputes. And the, the, the blood libel is used as a way of gaining more influence and control with the rulers, with Muhammad Ali. Especially Muhammad Ali is a new ruler. They're no longer under the Ottomans. There's this new rebel ruler in charge, or his proxy. Um, Ali is himself is in Egypt. And they're trying to influence him. On the other hand, Muhammad Ali wants influence with the French. The French are becoming more and more powerful in the region. And Ali needs European help because he's still revolting against the Sultan, against the Ottoman Empire. And he definitely needs... Uh, allies and Ali needs allies, and 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 he needs he he's trying to curry favor with the French, so he goes along with it and he says, "Oh, the French consul said that this is a thing accepted in Europe that there's blood libels and this is what Jews do. Go for it and let's let's get the Jewish community." And he goes along with the French, and and it becomes a real issue. It becomes believed. It's accepted and. It seems to be really, really dark times for the Jewish community in Damascus. Now there's a world outcry, not just from Jews, but from all over. It seems to be crazy that in modern times, in such a 19th century, that they would go for such a uh, blood libel, and there's a outcry from liberals and journalists and governments and in England and France and Germany and in the United States, and everyone weighs in. And there's a, a huge outcry about this, uh, about this issue. And world Jewry. World Jewry is galvanized and in certain ways united. We'll see exactly how much or how little they were united. But there's a big outcry from very diverse areas amongst the Jewish people. And they're all trying, they're all speaking out against what this French consul is doing in Muhammad Ali and the whole Damascus blood libel, it becomes a major issue of the day. By the way, in the 19th century, that very often happened. Emancipation of the Jews or Jews' civil rights or anti-Semitism was very often seen as a barometer of the modern times, of how liberal is a country, of what, what 
is the rulership and the what is the current current governing situation? Um, a few years after this, eighteen forty, um, uh, eighteen forty, Damascus blood libel was the revolutions of eighteen forty eight, and a major part of the revolutions was the revolutionaries were more pro. Jewish emancipation, and the old school establishment that they were trying to overthrow was anti-Jewish emancipation and civil rights. So you're talking about how very often the, the Jewish question, as it was known then, was, the, was almost like a fulcrum of, or a barometer at least of, uh, of where people stood in the 19th century. Now, just to, just to see how, how circumstances play a major role here, we can examine another story that happened at the exact same time. The Rhodes blood libel. Rhodes was an island uh, and belong, which was today part of Greece. Then, um, you know, in between Greece and the uh, Ottoman Empire, Greece was was uh, Greece national Greek nationalism was on the rise, and they eventually got independence from the Ottoman Empire. But it's but it's uh, at this time where it's still in the Ottoman Empire. And Rhodes had a very prominent, wealthy, important, old Jewish community there. And the same exact year, 1840, the Rhodes blood libel. There was a blood libel in Rhodes. Also a story of a disappearance of a Christian, a Greek Orthodox Christian, and they blamed the Jews. Ba 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 yada yada yada, the same exact story. And yet, no one ever heard of the Rhodes blood libel. And the Damascus blood libel is very, very famous. So why would one blood libel make more fame and news and waves then the, another blood libel. And the answer is because of the circumstances. The French consul has much more influence and power in Damascus. And Muhammad Ali is the one who's overall in charge, as opposed to Rhodes, which is still under the direct control of the sultan, who did not buy into the blood libel thing. And eventually, Moses Montefiore, who was inf- influential in both stories, he had an audience with the sultan himself, which was considered a major event, and a Jewish leader would have an influence personally with the sultan of Ottoman Empire, and uh, the uh, sultan writes a firman, a religious uh, decree that says that uh, the blood libel is never to be believed or accepted within the realm of the Ottoman Empire. And the Rose blood libel never becomes such a contentious issue because it's not a it's not within the context of a revolt against the Ottoman Empire by a ruler like Muhammad Ali with the influence of the French consul. And, and, it, and it's an international scandal because of everything going around it, not just because of the blood libel itself, which we'll see later when it comes to the British influence in the story. So the Rose blood libel stays a local affair because between the real Ottoman ruler and the locals, local Jewish community, the local people there in Rhodes, whereas the Damascus blood libel is at the center of an international story because of Muhammad Ali's rulership. So this is, which is also, like I said, under the influence of the French consul. We start to see, a, a as world Jewry gets very involved, there's everyone, there's, there's a public outcry, the Rothschilds in, in Austria and other places are trying to influence their governments and world Jewry all over, even the American Jewish community, which is quite small at the time, has what to say. And two major players come to the, to the, into the fray, Sir Moses Montefiore and a French Jewish lawyer who later was even more famous, Adolf 
Cremier, Cremieux, Cremier. These, I'm serious, these French names I, I find very difficult to pronounce. And I pity uh, anyone who's, you know, working in a Besden that has to write a get for, I hope no French Jews ever got divorced because writing their get is is impossible. Just to figure out how to spell their names and pronounce it. And um, I give I gave up long ago. But Cremier, I think that's uh, some something along those lines. And they are two major Jewish leaders, one French, one British. And they come down to Egypt to try to meet with Muhammad Ali and influence him and uh, do what's what's the age-old Jewish tradition of shtadlonus, of direct uh, influencing and intervention and uh, trying to get meet with local leaders to for the benefit of the Jewish community. Just over here, what we're witnessing is a certain extent Jewish solidarity, even world Jewish solidarity, almost for the first time in the modern era, because here is a French Jew, an English Jew, and it's about Damascus Jewry, and they're in Egypt, and they're kind of representing world Jewry to a certain extent, and and uh, and they're they're meet. Then they succeed in meeting with Muhammad Ali, and they try to influence him, and and it seems to to help. There's just a few a few issues. Number one, um, met, by many accounts, this is a watershed. Uh, Affair as far as as far as world jury is concerned, because this is a show of Jewish solidarity that had not been witnessed in modern times. Twenty years later, in 1860, when the Alliance Kiach Kol Yisrael Chaverim, the French Jewish organization that united Jews all over uh, with the banner of of education and bettering Jewish life and everything that they did, was the first um, organization in the modern era that saw the Jews as one people, and that we should act as such and work towards that goal and and unite the Jewish people. 20 years later, you have all kinds of um, rising nationalism and eventually Zionism, which is, you know, nationalism as as a uh, seeing the Jews as one people and working towards goals as for the Jewish people. And some see the roots of that in the 1840 Damascus blood libel, because this is where we see, for the first time, to a certain extent, world Jewish solidarity. The 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 uh, the problem, not the not the problem, but the the uh, caveat of that is that is that uh, Montefiore and Cremier, Cremieu, Cremier, they hated each other, and and Montefiore thought he was an upstart, a French upstart. Who's this young lawyer? What's he doing here in Alexandria, trying to meet with Muhammad Ali? You know, uh, Montefiore was was a little older than him, about 12 years older than him, and more experienced. He was a statesman. He had international reputation. He was known worldwide. He was known by leaders. He had done he had a lot of experience in dealing with Jewish issues before. And he thought that Cremier was an upstart. And what's he doing? He's ruining everything. He's going to throw an axe into the very delicate negotiations. And Cremier said, no, we have to be more active. And the two didn't speak to each other. They actually worked against each other. You'd have meetings in the morning with a delegation of Montefiore's people uh, with the government in Egypt. And, and in the afternoon, you'd have with Cremier, who would offer different different uh, terms for negotiation. It actually hurt their efforts. 
Not only that, but they both, for some reason, brought their wives along, and their wives hated each other, and they influenced their husbands. And there was a major Shalom bias issue um, and a big mess, and it wasn't exactly a show of Jewish solidarity. It was kind of them working against each other. And in reality, and if we examine the story carefully today, Crimea and Montefiore were not the ones who solved the issue. And of course, since it was a major international issue and a lot more context was going on, like I mentioned earlier, it ended up being solved on the international level by the British government. The British government was trying to gain more of an influence in the region and trying to, because of old, old rivalries, was trying to move France out, and they had their old issues with France. There was the internal issue of the Ottoman Empire versus Muhammad Ali, and the British had to say about that also. And the British government, together with the might of the British Navy, which was near Egypt, as they were to later gain more influence in Egypt, they later on dug the Suez Canal, they later on got even more influence there, and this is the beginning of that influence, the British Navy and the British government basically gave an ultimatum to Muhammad Ali. He backed down because of a British ultimatum, not because of Crimea and Montefiore. And, and the British ultimatum, which was influenced by their foreign policy vis-a-vis the Ottoman Empire, the putting down the French and, and getting involved with the rebel Muhammad Ali, that's ultimately what brought the story to the end. The Jewish leaders of Damascus are rescued, and the Jewish people, now a bit wiser than before, and a little bit more insightful about Jewish solidarity, and the Jewish people, no matter where they live, uh, them being uh, sharing the same, a similar fate, they take another step along the road of, of uh, uniting the Jewish people. A uh, small step in the long, uh, long and challenging path of Jewish solidarity and Jewish uh, unity. So that was a little bit about the story of the Damascus blood libel of 1840. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to places of interest and exciting Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.